This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Intersex variations are natural biological characteristics. It is estimated that 1.7% of people are born with intersex characteristics. Intersex people are subject to misunderstanding and significant stigma. Intersex is not a gender sexuality identity. Intersex is not the same as transgender. There is very little information about intersex people available. And that's why we initiated this podcast. Our Intersections podcast will strive to educate the general public, including the LGBTI communities, about intersex conditions and the lives of intersex people. We hope for the podcast to be an inclusive space, a sharing of ideas, a place of education for all. We hope these podcasts will help intersex people develop pride. Welcome to Intersections. Intersections is an opportunity to share in the lives of people born with physical sex characteristics that do not fit the binary notion of wholly female or male bodies. Our guests come from the intersex community, their families and the medical professionals that provide significant support to our community. In this episode, we discuss some of the more common issues faced by intersex individuals and their families dealing with Kleinfelter syndrome commonly referred to as 47XXY. Our guests on this episode, Sonia, Peter, Paul and Andrea. Welcome. Okay, hey, my name's Peter. I'm 23 years old. I was um, born with Kleinfelder syndrome, also known as XXY or 47XXY. So I'm Paul and you may have heard from me before. I have sat in this chair before. Uh, particularly on the Intersex Awareness Day, which is October 26 of each year. So I also was born with the sex chromosome variation XXY, was diagnosed at the age of 28 with what I was told was Kleinfelter syndrome. I'm now 52. And over the last years, I've been getting used to this, what was a diagnosis, understanding what it means for me physically, cognitively, and socially. And through various treatment and other activities, uh, coming to terms with that, I'm now an advocate for people with this sex chromosome variation and other sex, X and Y sex chromosome variations. And hi, I'm Sonia, and my husband happens to have Kleinfelters, which means that he is medically infertile like everyone else with the same thing. And I'm Andrea. And I was born with Kleinfelters. I wasn't diagnosed until my early 30s. And that was because I developed a tumour. And I'm in my 60s now. So what's, one, of the, one of the key subjects that we've been talking about today has been some of the challenges that are faced by typically men with this condition being born infertile. and. When I was diagnosed at the age of 28, it was, you are infertile. You will never have children. Full stop. Nowadays, a lot of the people that with Kleinfelder syndrome are, have got opportunities to father or parent children through a process called microtessy. The difficulty is that's not considered reproductive health. 
for us. That's considered elective cosmetic surgery. And even though it's a procedure to find sperm in the testes so that we can father children, it's not covered by Medicare. It's all out of pocket apart from a small amount of money. So um, that we get back. So anyway, I'm just wondering if there's anyone else here who might like to share their own personal experience of that. Sonia has a very, the word just disappeared. Touching. <laughs> Emotional. Sonia has a very intimate understanding of what it means to, to have a partner that's dealing with pine filters and fertility issues. Yes, so my husband and I got married in November of 2014 and then by about the following November we kind of started looking at me because generally people who have trouble conceiving, it's always the women. We looked at me, I was medically fine and then after that I started researching, I guess, male factor in fertility. And then I stumbled across Kleinfelter syndrome. We waited a little bit more, probably the October of that year, so 2016 now. Um, my husband went and got a semen analysis done and he, we found out on our second wedding anniversary that he doesn't make any sperm. So moving forward, we talking to a friend of ours. She recommended another doctor, just a GP. We went to see the GP. The GP took more blood tests and um, another analysis and it came back with nothing, but hormones were funny. So he ended up having low testosterone, but high estrogen and progesterone, if I've said that right. And then she referred us on to another specialist. And throughout all this, I'm still questioning Kleinfelter's the next specialist was a under a urologist, sorry, and he did more bloods and another analysis, and it came back with having one of the blood tests was Y chromosome, and he came back having the Y chromosome, which then determined he had Kleinfelter's. So we're now on the wonderful, magical journey of IVF and. I guess, trying to save enough money to do the IVF. It is a very expensive process. And typically a person that's in a heterosexual relationship and female gets quite a bit of assistance for IVF. But what is it like if your partner being a male, having Kleinfelters, has the issue and you need to have IVF assistance? So we have been quoted something like $12,000. And of that $12,000, we get 800 back. If we were to use donor sperm, it would be straight $800. But who wants to father a child that's not biologically theirs? So that leads us to a whole heap of other issues. I think that's one of the things that everybody would and would have a desire to raise a family that becomes one of the most important things to the human race. So and can I just get clarification there? So if, the, if you do the procedure with your husband who has Kleinfelter syndrome, you get $800 back out of eleven or 12000 but if you use somebody else's sperm, you only have to pay $800. 
Bingo. So work that one out in your heads. It's very discriminatory. And um, women's IVF treatments and processes is considered as reproductive health, and ours is considered as cosmetic elective, I believe. Yes. So a lady going through IVF in a normal heterosexual relationship would be, so we're going through Monash IVF because that's what my husband's specialist has recommended, and they charge about $10,000 roughly, and we get back about $5,500. So it's still expensive, but not as expensive as having to both of us go through a medical procedure. So you're classed as being socially infertile then? That is up to the discretion of my gynecologist. How can they make that decision? I have no idea. It's it's really, really strange, really, really weird because if I was socially infertile, that would mean that I'm having a relationship with another female, whereas I'm having a relationship with my husband who is a male. So um, I guess it's how... How my gynecologist sees the thing. Am I am I going about having children because it's socially acceptable to have children, or am I going about it because I genuinely want children? Like, does that make sense, everyone? Yeah, yep, it makes sense. Um, only from the point of view of, and uh, it's uh, unintended discrimination, perhaps if we're being generous, that the system hasn't recognised the scenario that we're talking about and that there needs to be um that they can't apply the same labels and terms just foot just uh, asterisks in that i don't think there should be something called social infertility for any couples the fact that you're in a heterosexual relationship as simply wanting to have a child with your infertile partner and there's the potential that you who are not infertile are being labeled socially infertile. infertile when you are actually fertile is just completely crazy. Yes, it is. What pathways do you have other than going through Monash? Um, so, like I said, our specialist only deals with Monash IVF. I believe there is someone through Melbourne IVF, but I guess we're dealing with someone who has published a lot of medical journals and articles. And for an example, we were in his wedding rooms and we saw a very famous patient. So I guess we're, we're paying top dollar to see a really good specialist and we're hoping to get good results, I guess. I think for me it's very hard because I haven't really even thought about this, this issue and to actually start to listen to somebody going through this experience, it's just overwhelming. I can't understand how there could be so much discrimination and how anyone could be discriminated against having a child. Mm. I don't know how people can be discriminated against because of their chromosomal makeup or their biological makeup. It doesn't seem like a very fair playing field. It certainly has a slant one way. So what are some other areas of discrimination that any of us have uh experienced perhaps in now our treatment or um or other uh things that would that perhaps should be covered uh by PBSs and things like that. I think my early experiences with discrimination was really being placed with an endocrinologist who had a one size fits all approach. His approach was to just 
you know, give me a, a dose of testosterone and send me on my way and, and said that, you know, everything's all fixed. But in actual fact, I'm estrogen dominant. And all that did was just throw my estrogen levels through the roof. And it set myself up for a pretty wild ride for two, three months that I was on the testosterone until I just couldn't deal with life anymore and stopped taking estrogen. Sorry, uh, the testosterone. I was referred to a different doctor who then started working with me and found that I was actually estrogen dominant. And the more testosterone I was given, the more was converted into estrogen. Nowadays, I have a an endocrinologist that actually... Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.